Take this, this is my body, and divide it, I'm sorry, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that I will not, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you, the new covenant in my blood. And behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Jesus prays before he institutes this amazing ordinance, this symbol that we have to experience as believers. He gives thanks before he distributes the cup for their consumption, and he prays as he's breaking the bread, giving thanks. And this is similar to what we saw when Jesus fed the 5,000, when he fed the 4,000. He gave thanks before those two great miracles. And the highlight of what we looked at intently with those two miracles is that Jesus is giving thanks, and he's reminding us that we are under the covenant of grace. And this is probably the most pronounced place that you can see it. My body, which is given for you, my blood, which is poured out for you. In Christianity, this is not a rewards program. There's no process of achievements. There's no acts of pre-obedience that get you in a better place to earn God's blessing. He is a once-for-all-time offering for the sins of His people. The altar is closed. No works allowed. This is the better covenant. This is the better promises that our great high priest mediates. This is how Jesus is your high priest. He takes our neediness and emptiness. Remember what the high priest does. He is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So he takes our emptiness, our neediness, and goes to the Father on our behalf. And the Father responds in his blessing. Jesus does not just bring encouraging words. He doesn't just bring a new life perspective. He doesn't just give us new rules. He doesn't just give you a better view of yourself. He doesn't just give you positivity to make it through life's hardships. He doesn't just give you better relationships or the ability to reconcile your relationships. He doesn't just give you meaning and purpose. He doesn't just give you community. What you need at your deepest level, whether you know it or not, is the slaughtered Son of God. His crushed body, broken for you. His spilled, poured out blood. We quick, quickly, many times, I think, glance over the violence of this text. This is my body, which is given for you as he breaks the bread and passes it among the disciples. And as he pours out the drink, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you. The imagery is stark. And he prays, giving thanks for this meal. He's primarily, I think, giving thanks to the Father for what this is all symbolizing. Notice again these verbs. It's given. It's poured out. Who is doing the giving and the pouring out? Is it us? Do we go up to the altar and take this blessing for ourselves? Who is doing the pouring out and the giving? You can look at Isaiah 53. I would encourage you to read it all when you have the chance. We only have the chance to read just a few, just for the sake of time here. 
prophet says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. And it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for transgressors. In this simple prayer of thanks, Jesus shows us how to think about our salvation. We should feel and act out a deep-seated gratitude. And that can only be the case if you sense and feel your deep need for grace. Many of you think, maybe, that you're grateful for your salvation, but you've never had once, even, a situation in your life or an experience, anything like what the prostitute had when she came and washed Jesus' feet with her tears. You've never come to that point of understanding, I need grace, and I have received grace. Feeling that deep sense, she loved much because she was forgiven much. You should see yourself in that text. The reason why some of you cannot sense a deep, heartfelt gratitude for your salvation is that you are so busy trying to convince yourself about how awesome you are. And the world is at full tilt trying to persuade you that you're a rock star. And all the self-help gurus want you to see yourself as having, as having unlimited potential and unfathomable talents. And even many within the church, many spend all their ministries and write books trying to get you to think of yourself primarily as a priceless treasure. And all the songs, too make us think that. So when we hear Jesus died on the cross for your sins, if we are marinated, if our self-view of ourselves is in that perspective, our response is, well, of course he did. Haven't you heard how awesome I am? Only when you know that the broken body and shed blood of Jesus is what you really need. Can you have deep gratitude? Because of our sin, we're worse than just someone who is unworthy. It's not that we're, that the, our main problem isn't that we're unworthy, brothers and sisters. You're God's enemies in our sin. We have set ourselves in the camp of the enemy, assaulting heaven, saying God has no right to sit on his throne. And only in that place can you have an experience at the deepest level, like the woman who came and washed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and have that deep sense, I have been forgiven and it transforms your life. You have to see yourself that way. Jesus prays, giving thanks for this covenant of grace. This is the covenant he mediates as your great high priest. And so should we. We should pray this way. Giving thanks always. Sensing our deepest need for his broken body <coughs> and shed blood. And also just a few verses later. This is the next prayer. Verse 31 of Luke chapter 22. And he said to them. I'm sorry. Simon. Simon. Behold. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Nine, Note a few things before we get to look at this specific prayer of Jesus. Note the authority of Jesus. The enemy is asking permission to sift Peter like wheat. He doesn't say, I, an angel told me or the father has told me that Satan is asking him. Satan asked. 
that he might have you to sift you like wheat. And what would we want Jesus to respond to Satan if he made that request about us? Simply, no, we'll do. Lord Jesus, thank you very much. But note his response. I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And note what the context, what, what, what happens right after. When you have turned again. Essentially saying, you're going to fall. You're going to deny me. This sifting of wheat is going to happen. But when you have turned again, because I pray that your faith may not fail, you will come back. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I can't help but think as I read this account and also the account of Peter's actual denial when Jesus says, if you deny me before men, so will I deny you before my Father. Do you not think that Peter remembered that? how deeply he felt his fall. So just a caution before we proceed. It's not so much a matter of how you begin. It's how you end and how often you repent. If you lean too heavily on your testimony and a one-time experience you had way back in the past, what if Peter had done that? All of his confidence would have been lost. He had gone back, oh, I remember when Jesus called me out of the business of fishing and we went with him. And if he leaned so heavily on that, instead of in that moment of despair when he goes out and weeps bitterly, he knows Jesus Christ is Lord. He has prayed for me that my faith will not fail. I will repent. It's not so much a matter of how you start. It's more important what direction you're headed in now, and how you will end. Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And Jesus prays, that your faith may not fail. This is his prayer. I'm praying for you, Peter. The enemy is going to sift you like wheat. I'm praying that your faith would not fail. Do you even know what you need at your deepest level? Do you know what your friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ, really need? This is your Lord, and this is how he prays, not just for Peter, but also for you and me. We'll see that in John 17. Is this how you pray for yourself and your brothers and sisters? Do you have an understanding at all of what you need most of all? It is arguable that the reason the trial comes in the first place is to strengthen our faith. If you look at James 1. That your faith may not fail. Are you praying that the Lord would strengthen your faith, enable you to endure the fiery trial, and to give strength to your brothers and sisters, that their faith would not fail, that they would have strength in their faith? And your response might be, but I already believe in Jesus. But your faith, my faith, may be very fragile and weak. And the way you can tell if it is is how quickly you act as if Christ is not your Lord when the temptation comes. And how closely you follow the example of Peter. If that weak faith folds under pressure and gives way, do you turn again? With great sorrow and grief that produces lasting repentance. Is that you? I hope you can see so far in everything we've looked at that Jesus not only prays for us in his ministry to us as your great high priest, that he labors for you as he petitions the Father on your behalf, but also I hope that you're learning how you ought to pray. Now we turn to John 17. This whole chapter is a prayer. And it's the longest prayer by one person in the entire Bible. And let me just say it's simply magnificent. It's been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, though John himself does not call it this. 
it is right to call it that because of its context and its content. I want to say a few things about this prayer before we look at its individual parts. First, the contents of this prayer merit at least 10 hours of exposition. We don't have time for that. I got to, to feel like I'm not skipping over significant things that we're not talking about very important applications that would need about 10 hours at minimum to talk through this. We're going to try and finish it in our time today. Second, John is the only one to record this prayer. And it's after they leave the upper room. At the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, Rise, let us go from this place. So it's likely, in the spirit of what Jesus says, I, have, I still have many things to tell you. Chapters 15 and 16 are likely Jesus teaching on the way after he has left the upper room on his way to the Mount of Olives. So he's trying to cram everything he can into those few moments that he has left with his disciples. And maybe the reason John is the only one to record this is because he would have likely been walking closest to Jesus as the one whom Jesus loved. And he has the best hearing of what Jesus is saying, both in his teaching and in his prayer, as they approach the Mount of Olives where he's going to be betrayed. Just as a side note, as we look at Jesus' prayer life, says, the man, and know how we ought to pray, how we ought to pray. Have you ever felt like you're out of time? You just can't find a moment to rest. But even more than that, you don't have time enough for even the big and most important things in your life. Jesus felt that too. He says, I still have many things to tell you. And in those final moments, running out of time, wanting to say more, wanting to teach more, Wanting to encourage more, what does it do? He prays. We must live by this example to claim to live a life of faith. The third thing I want you to know about this prayer this prayer is for you as well as for the disciples. He says at one point, I am not praying for the world. Praying for those who will believe in me through their words. He's not just talking about the disciples. He's not just praying to the Father about them. He's praying, if you are in Christ, if you believe in Him, He's praying for you in these words. For all that the Father has given Him. So as I read through these words, know that this is your Lord Christ. This is your great High Priest. And this is what He is specifically praying for you in all its glory. So know, in his final moments, the final moments that, he's, that he has before he goes into extreme distress of soul, his final moments while he's not in chains, his final moments before being beaten and tortured and killed in the worst possible way, this is what he prays for. So we begin, John 17, verse 1. Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's what I would argue is the first part of this prayer. So what is the request? What is he asking in this first part, this beginning portion of the prayer. He 
asks it twice, actually. Glorify your Son. A few verses down. And now, Father, glorify me. Does that sound selfish to you? Why would a great high priest pray, first and foremost, to be glorified? I think he began with some request for us, or for our perseverance, or for our faith even, which he's going to get to. But he begins by praying to be glorified. With the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. Again, before we get into the explanation, we're not going to be able to explain everything in totality. Do you even know what you really need most? Because Jesus does. This is what he prays for you. Father, glorify your Son. A glorified Christ is what you need in your life. Most of all, more than anything else you can think of, what you need at the center of your being is a glorified, risen, reigning, sovereign Christ. For your heart, the eyes of your heart, to see Him like that. This is the best thing for you. This is why your great high priest prays this for you. Glorify me, Father. Glorify your Son. Understanding who He is, where He stands now, and desiring to see His glory, those ought to be the most basic thoughts and desires of your heart. And if you're in Christ, the Spirit is working in you so that those will be the deepest desires of your heart. And so praying, Father, glorify your Son. He is seeking to meet the deepest need of all of His people throughout all time. Does this sound anything like your prayers? This is different and more specific than the glory of God. Many of us pray, I think, and I know I talk this way, for the glory of God. Many times we don't unpack that, we don't understand what we're saying, or we just say it as a tagline to make it sound really Christian. More than the glory of God, in a general sense, what we want as Christians to see and to experience and to know is the glory of Christ. Because Christ, more than anyone, glorifies the Father. It's not putting these things at odds, but the glory of God in a general way is seen even in creation. But the special revelation of God in His Son is more specific, more grand, more all-encompassing. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but now He has spoken to us by His Son. Seeing that glorified Christ is what you need, Christian. There's a Trinitarian dynamic here you need to see. He says, I have glorified you on earth, so now glorify your Son. And then you can bring in everything He said about the Spirit in chapters 14 through 16. This is a intermingling of the three persons of the Trinity, glorifying each other and rejoicing in each other. All as one God, perfect in unity, perfect in power, love, purity. So we'll move to the second part. Leaving so much, even low-hanging fruit to talk about, just put yourself in this chapter as long as you can. The second part. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, 
and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. This is the work of your great high priest for you, to manifest the name of God to you. Does that sound odd to you? Do you even know what that means? That the, the very Son of God, that his work towards you is to manifest the name of God to you. And this leads to having, having received Jesus' ministry to you and manifesting the name of God to you results in multiple things. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave to me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. The result of Jesus manifesting the name of God to the people that God has given Jesus is that we receive him and we believe that he is from God. you see and note the fusion of the name of God, the words of God, the identity of Christ, all together. And that this results in faith and obedience and perseverance. He has spoken to us through his son, the author of Hebrews says. He is manifesting the name of God to you, even now. Is Jesus just your Lord and Savior? I give him obedience. He gives me salvation. Seems like a fair deal. I believe in him. He saves me. And that's true. Absolutely true. But not once in this whole prayer, this massively significant prayer in the life of Jesus, and especially the whole point John is making about Jesus, being the Son of God, so that we might have life in His name. Not once does He mention the forgiveness of sins. And that's not to say that we don't need to be forgiven of our sins. We absolutely do. Especially bringing in everything we just talked about with His body being broken for you and His blood being poured out for you. But forgiveness of sins, brothers and sisters, is not the end goal. You are forgiven of your sins in Christ so that you can come to know God. And that the Son of God can manifest the very name of God to you. Your sin stands in the way between you and knowing this God. And that's why Jesus had to die. To remove the offense of your sins before a holy God. So you could be brought near to know this God. And this eternal life, he's going to say, that they know you, and that they know Jesus whom they have sent. To know God is eternal life. It's not just we are given eternal life so that we can know God. Eternal life is to know God. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. So he has manifested the name of God to us, and now he asks that we would be kept in his name. Understand what's happening here. That Jesus comes in his ministry to you in his life, and everything he says is manifesting the name of God to us, and we respond in belief and obedience and repentance, and now he's praying that the Father would keep us in his name. Again, does this sound anything like the prayers that you pray? Keep me in your name, Father. Keep my brother, my sister, my friend in your name. Manifest your name to them. These are high and lofty prayers. But Jesus is praying these for you. They're not just some 
nuanced, far-off spiritual reality. This is your most important need as a Christian. Jesus' perspective is right because he knows everything. So shouldn't that mean that we should pray like him? Not necessarily these exact words, but the same ideas. This is not a formality. This is your most important need. This is the most important thing for you when he's praying for right here, that you would receive the name of God from the Son of God and be kept in his name. He also tells us why he is praying all these things. His reason for praying in their hearing and the desired end result of these prayers is this, that my joy may be fulfilled in themselves. That's stunning. Just to pause and think about that. That my joy would be fulfilled in themselves. That there is a joy from outside. From the very heart of the Son of God being fulfilled, unfolded, and lived out in your own heart and experienced in a more intense way together. So this joy that the Son of God has and has had from all eternity is now being poured into our hearts and it is coming to pass that that joy is being fulfilled even in our own hearts. Does that sound like anything that you've ever experienced? A joy from outside, a joy even from heaven in your hearts, breaking through the shackles of gloominess and sadness in spite of situations and birthing itself over and over each day, the joy of the very Son of God in your heart. Jesus is not interested in gloomy submission that doesn't honor Christ. He wants His joy to be fulfilled in your heart. I want you to keep this idea of this joy in your mind and keep this question in mind. This is a very important question. What is the joy of Christ? Every joy that you have is fixed on something, that you have joy because of something, that you're seeing something or something has happened or you understand something and that is what joy results in. It's not just an abstract feeling that comes and just takes you by surprise. What is the joy of Christ? So keep that in your mind. Keep that question in your mind as we go to the next part. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world, so I have, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, so they also may be sanctified in the truth. This part gives us vital insight into the world, the word of God, the enemy, our sanctification, and the truth, and how all of those relate together. The word in this text functions in two ways. It reveals the truth by which we are sanctified. So the truth that we are receiving from God, the truth that has been given to us in the Son of God, creates in us a process of sanctification as we receive it. But it also provokes the hatred of the world. Just as a side note there, it should not discourage you, brothers and sisters, at least for your sake, when the world hates you. When the institutions and systems of the world seem to be set against the cause of Christ. That's confirmation of what Jesus is saying here. They are not of the world, and the world has hated them because of my words. We should expect it. 
provokes the hatred of the world. But Jesus doesn't want us to be taken out of the world. He says, I'm not asking that you would take them out of the world. There is no escapism in Christianity. Even though historically that has happened a lot, we just tend to move ourselves away and further away and further away from areas of darkness, situations where things aren't like we want them. Father, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. <laughs> and this sanctification, this process that makes us more holy, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That is how the Father keeps you from the evil one. It's not some crazy experience of spiritual warfare or demons and exorcisms. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's the answer to the question, how does the Father keep us from the enemy? What if you treated your Bibles as the only tangible thing in your life that would keep you from falling into the snare of the devil and being dragged along with him into the condemnation of hell. What if we treated our Bibles that way? This is how he sanctifies you. This is how he keeps you from the evil one. How shall a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed thereto according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought thee. Let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And he says, I consecrate myself. It's more than just a giving himself up to be killed. He's consecrating himself. He is setting himself apart, giving himself over to the will of the Father for your sake. Do you pray for yourself and your brothers and sisters like this? Sanctify them in the truth. Keep them from the enemy. Jesus does, because he's your faithful great high priest. And he knows what you need most of all. We move to the next part. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is where we know for certain, even though it's implied earlier in the text, this is how we know for certain he is praying for you and me in these words. I'm not asking just for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you have come to believe in Jesus based on the truth about him in the Bible, Jesus is praying for you in these words. He's looking throughout all time for all those who would call on him, and this is what he's praying for you. What does he pray? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Jesus prays that the Father would do the very thing that Jesus is beginning to accomplish by giving us the glory that the Father has given Jesus. That's a big sentence. Let me read it again. Jesus prays that the Father would do the very thing that Jesus is beginning to accomplish by giving us the glory that the Father has given Jesus, namely to unite us together in perfect oneness with the Father, Son, and Spirit. If you can come to a place where you can appreciate and be stunned by that sentence, and have wonder generated in your heart, 
just at the number of ideas and the magnitude of the glory going on in each phrase, you will be well on your way to maturity in Christ. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them so that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That's a lot. There's, it, it would take me three hours just on that. that. That is probably the most intense nugget of this prayer. And we can't address it all. But what I want you to see is to be stunned by it. To grasp the wonder and the glory of what he has called you to. This is why we have to get beyond in our minds just seeing Jesus as the way that we get to heaven. Of course he's the way we get to heaven. But this is what heaven is for. This is what life in Christ means. Again, have you ever prayed anything like this before? Do you even know why it's important? Jesus does. He prays this for you because it's of utmost importance that you would receive the glory that Jesus is giving you, that the Father has given him, so that we would all be one, so that the world would know that the Father has sent Jesus. On he goes. This unity, to have the effect that Jesus wants it to have, must be of divine origin and not anything else. This unity must be oneness with God and by the work of Christ in giving us the glory that the Father gave him. I'm not interested in fake, Christless unity or just being chummy with each other. That's not what Jesus wants here. He wants us to be perfectly one, united in the glory that he is giving us, that the Father has given him. And what is this glory? Is it just his shining brightness in heaven? Is it just the understanding of who he is? think what he means here by saying the glory that you have given me I have given to them is his unique relationship with and joy in the Father. You say that again. The glory that Jesus has received from the Father that he is giving to us is his unique relationship with and joy in the Father. And this will unfold more as we get into the next Parts. Father, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me. Where I am, why? To see my glory. Glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. <coughs> this direct address, he begins it by saying, Father, addressing him again directly, sets this short but powerful part aside as a unit. Why does Jesus bring us to heaven? Why does the Trinity work in unison to bring you to be with God? This is the answer, to see his glory. To see the glory of the Son of God. This is what's going on here. This is what's going on in your life. This is what the Spirit is working in your heart. If you're in Christ, This is what he is doing. That is why you're going to heaven, because Jesus wants you to see his glory. All of heaven is about Jesus. Does this sound like the reasons you want to go? Yes, all the other reasons are legitimate. I'm looking forward to not having to deal with sickness and 
and death and to see many people, some I've never met and some that I didn't meet enough. I'm looking forward to all of that. I'm looking forward to the absence of sin. But all of those, brothers and sisters, in comparison to the glory of the Son of God, even the very gates of New Jerusalem made from solid pearl look bland and unimpressive compared to the glory of the Son of God. And what is this glory? Let's go back to that phrase that I told you to keep in your mind. My joy. That my joy may be filled in themselves. What is this joy of Jesus? He says, even though the world does not know you, I know you. The glory of the Son of God is His perfect, infinite, and overflowing joy in His knowledge of all the fullness of God. From before all time, He has known the Father perfectly, and that results in the very heart of hearts of the Son of God, unending joy. So this is the glory that He is giving to you, and this is the glory that he wants you to see. And this is the joy that he wants to unfold and be fulfilled in your own heart. That, friends, is what Jesus is praying for you to have. This is eternal life, that they know you, and they know your Son, whom you have sent. And at this point, those of you who are spiritual, and those of you who have been paying attention can peer over into the very depths of the Spirit of God and the mind of Christ. For you, the clouds begin to part. And even if just for a moment you can begin to see the foundation of the mountain range that is the glory of God, and begin to catch glimpses where this mountain range lifts above even the heavens, as we try to understand this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Are you ready for this? Do you know that this is why suffering is brought into your life? These light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This glory of the Son of God that is being given to you, this joy of the Son of God that is being birthed into your heart, being brought to heaven so that you may see the glory of the Son of God. Are you ready for that? Are you praying for yourself and for your brothers and sisters that you would be ready for that? And when suffering comes, because it will, that God would use that to prepare your heart for that glory. To take in the glory of the Son of God, which is to say that you will share in the very joy that is the Son of God. That he has in his father. Understand that when the Lord brings suffering into your lives, he's getting you ready for that day. Are you praying with this in mind? This changes everything about how we ought to pray. Praying like Jesus here. Father, show me how I may be ready to receive your glory and see your glory through this trial. Father, may my brother, may my sister endure through this trial and be faithful to you so that on that day they may be ready to see your glory and that the joy of Christ may be birthed full in them. And then we come to the final part. He sets it apart again with another direct address, even more intense. This is verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. He has made the name of God known. That is his most basic ministry to you as your great high priest. 
This is from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So you, they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So Aaron is given this blessing as the high priest under the, the Levitical priesthood to put the name of God among the people. And as a result of putting the name of God upon the people, God would bless them. That is what Jesus does for you as your new great high priest. He puts the name of God upon you so that God may bless you. The very love that God the Father has had in the Son from before the foundation of the world is being placed on you in Christ. Did you catch that? I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I don't want to be loved simply as a creature, as a creation, as a possession, as a thing that won't sustain you throughout all eternity. While it might be amazing, billions of years into the future, if you're on the outside, if you're being merely loved as something other than something outside, even as an angel, you're missing out on something. A creature, an object, a possession, even an angel, stand on the outside looking in, and so would we for all eternity, unless God the Father finds a way to extend the love that He has for the Son from before the foundation of the world and place it on you. This is the final and best blessing of Jesus, your great high priest. And this is why he is praying to the Father that it will happen. And the Father always honors the requests of the Son. If you're in Christ, this will happen. The love that God the Father has for the Son will be on you. The answer to this prayer from the Father on your behalf is, yes, I will place the love that I have for you, Jesus, from before the foundation of the world on them, the ones that I have given you. How can God do this? This is a scandal. This might even be idolatry. God will have no other gods before God. But being joined with Christ makes this possible. This is why sin has to be dealt with. This is why it must be a covenant of grace. It's not on the basis of works. You improving yourself to come before the Father. You're being given the shed blood of Christ. Given the broken body of Christ to bring us near. And why it must be through faith. It's the abandonment of self-sufficiency to come before the Father and plead His mercy. Being in Christ and Him in us means that the Father, in loving the Son, loves all those He has given to the Son with the same love. For all eternity, you will be the recipient of the very love that God has for Jesus Christ. This is what He prays for you. I would argue, brothers and sisters, this is how we ought to pray for one another. That the love of God, even the very love that God has for the Son, would be in us. We're out of time. I would love to go through all the applications of how this changes everything about your perspective, but I want to caution you against that. The desire for an application. Many of us come to the Word of God saying, that's great, Jesus, just tell me how to fix my marriage. 
That's great, Jesus. Tell me how to deal with my rebellious child. That's great, Jesus. All this mystical stuff and you know heaven and eternity and stuff. Just tell me how to deal with my boss. But even before he goes to the cross, before he takes on our sin and dies in your place, this is what he's praying for for you. That you would be filled with the love of God. That the glory that the Father has given the Son would be given to you. And that you would have the joy of Jesus fulfilled in your hearts. This is what you need. This is what you need, brothers and sisters. Father, help us bask in the glory of the Son of God. That even while we wait the day where we stand before you in perfection, 